For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. Welcome to Epic Realms. I am your host, Nick, and I wanted to give you a little preview of what's going on here. What is this episode? What are the next couple episodes going to be? This current episode is an old side project podcast episode, and we're going to be doing these for a while as we ramp up Epic Realms. I wanted to kind of give you a preview of what is to come and kind of go back and kind of reset and get in everyone's mind exactly what we are doing. This is going to be a bunch of interviews from here on out. The Old Side Project podcast, we kind of went off script, we did some other discussions, which we may do on the side uh, through our Patreon, but that's still kind of also getting up and ramped up and underway. But here, I had a vision, and the vision was to create kind of this small, I don't want to say a conglomerate because that is way too huge and we're just a podcast, but I wanted to do more. I, I wanted to do live streaming. I wanted to do a blog. I wanted to do all kinds of other things that didn't necessarily all fit under the podcast sort of genre, so I made kind of this overarching title called Epic Realms. And with the overarching title, I thought to myself, how can I put this together? So we created a Twitch stream. We're streaming videos there. Uh, currently, it's mostly just me playing video games and some role-playing systems that we do until we get some of our interviews uh, set up and lined up. But I thought to get the podcast itself going, I don't want to just start off with, you know, here, here's so-and-so and have absolutely nobody listening. So I thought to myself, well, we can take the old Side Project podcast interviews to kind of get it out there, to kind of wet your palate, so to speak, to get an idea of what we're going to do. So this first interview that you're going to hear was done by Adam and Matt from the Side Project Podcast, and they're interviewing Keith Baker. So I hope that you enjoy this interview with Keith Baker from the Side Project Podcast, which you can still find on your favorite podcast locations. Uh, we have probably three or four years worth of podcasts there to listen to that covered a variety of topics and had a variety of interviews, and all of the interviews that we had I will also be reposting under the Epic Realms brand. So I really hope you enjoy this episode of Epic Realms. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Side Project Podcast. This will be our season finale, and our season premiere will probably just be next month, so you don't have to wait all that long. But uh, I am Adam, I am your host, and joining me tonight I have Matt. Hello everyone. And I have a very special guest with us on the mics today. Uh, joining us is the creator of Eberron, Gloom, and a number of other very popular games, Mr. Keith Baker. Hi, glad to be here. Well, we are very glad that you are here. I really appreciate you agreeing to, to come join us on the mics tonight and uh, to kind of sit and chat about the stuff that you're working on. And uh, I, I am a huge Eberron fan myself, so it's kind of a, kind of an honor to speak with you, sir. So I'm very glad you were able to make it on the mics with us tonight. 
Same here. Shockingly, I'm a huge Eberron fan myself. So, Amazing you know, how that works. I about. am very glad to hear that. <laughs> so let's just jump right into it then, if you're uh, if you're amenable to that, Keith. Absolutely. So what uh, what are you working on right now? What are your what are your current projects at the moment? Uh, so my current projects, I'm still hoping that there will be an opportunity to um, do new Eberron material in 2015. Okay. And that's something I've been talking with Wizards about, and there's a lot of different ways things could go, and it's going to be months, I think, before we do know. Um, aside from that, so that that's fingers crossed there will be a chance to, to do something there. I'm, I'm curious. I'm just going to interject real quick. Are, are you optimistic that this is going to happen? I mean, do you think it's likely to happen? I'm, I'm optimistic that it's going to happen in some form. Okay. Uh, you can certainly see just in the, the fifth edition books, you know, they drop in references to Eberron they and do. such. And I think the main question to me is what form it takes. You know, in fourth edition, you know, we had these two sort of main books, and and that was about it. It was the the sort of trend there was do a thing and be done. And the question is if it's going to be something like that, or if there might be some opportunity for, um, you know, some sort of broader scale of official support. So, something more like what happened with three point five with the the original. And and I don't think it's likely that you would see the same quantity of books produced for the setting as you did in 3.5, just because a setting-specific book is, you know, inherently aimed at a smaller market, and they've got Hasbro to think about and all of that. Um, but even if it's just opportunities to do more things like, you know, a 10,000-word piece on Droam, or, you know, things like that, if there's sure. more opportunities for... Uh, you know, because it is their IP, so I can't just write up something on Dargoon if I wanted to, you know. And so even if there's just an opportunity to um, to write more things, whether they're sort of imprint PDFs or something else, we'll see. Okay. Okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to. We'll get into Eberron a little later here, but what else are you Certainly. working on right now? Uh, so aside from that, uh, and I do have two charity events coming up, um, Extra Life. I am representing Eberron in the um, official Dungeons & Dragons Extra Life Marathon. Uh, and then the week after that, I'm doing an event called Charity 20 in Los Angeles where um, we're raising money for Reach Out and Read, which is a children's literary, uh, literacy organization, and I'm creating an Eberron adventure for that, which I will be running uh, for a number of actors and writers and such, uh, and that's something where if people donate to that, they can get a copy of the adventure. So those are sort of casual Eberron-themed things. Okay. Just um, real quick with the charities, is that something you, you decided to do on your own? Were you approached to do that? How did that work? Uh, sort of both. Uh, Extra Life is something that's been going on for a while, and I haven't uh, done it before. But this year, the, the D&D team asked me if I wanted to be on their team, and, and yeah, why not? Uh, it's a good cause. Sure. And then uh, the Charity 20 is something that I've actually been involved with for the last four years. Um, and, yeah, it's just a thing where I... Um, it's a good cause. It's good people organizing it, and uh, it's always fun to do something good with D and D. Yeah, absolutely. 
I have to say as so I've been playing D and D in its various forms for oh god uh, almost twenty five years now. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of from being a person that started out you know uh, original Redbox and moving into second edition, getting a chance to play with someone that writes these adventures such as yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the the uh, luck of uh, about a year and a half before his death to play a six-hour game, game with uh, Dave Arnson. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And just, and just to really have that connection of, oh, yeah, I created with, or I played a game with the creator of of Eberron. I played a game with the creator of Dungeons & Dragons. And mm-hmm. it's like, as a gamer, you kind of put that on your resume. <laughs> or, you know, being at cons and people are talking about what you're doing, you're like, oh, I'm just going to name drop a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, uh, you know, I had a period where I actually, in 2009, I actually traveled around the world uh, basically DMing for food. Uh, and, you know, for me, I really like getting to get out there and play with the people who, who you know are playing the games. You know, it's always fun. I, I had one adventure that I actually ran almost 60 times uh, just playing it with different groups of people and sort of a, you always get a different story every time. Um, I, you're going. Oh, I was to say, I do have to say that is probably one of the, the, my favorite aspects of, of running, especially running games at, at conventions and running games down at the local games shop is mm-hmm. just seeing that, yeah, I'm running the same adventure, but just mm-hmm. seeing how differently six to eight people can run with that adventure is just mind boggling and it's just never the same. And it definitely depends on the adventure, but definitely the way I write things, I always like to have a lot of room in the adventure for for char- you know the players to make it their own. Um, just to finish up the question of what I'm working on, so yes. uh, Eberron and and you know crossing my fingers on that, I'm working on the charity programs. I actually have a couple of Gloom projects I'm working on, uh, Fairy Tale Gloom is something that I finished and uh, will come in 2015 and then i'm also developing munchkin gloom (laughs) uh, which is a team up with uh with steve jackson and basically it's the opposite things because of course the whole point of gloom is you know you want your story to end poorly uh and so of course in munchkin well you know your heroes don't usually have things end poorly but they rise to power by kicking indoors, killing monsters, and taking their stuff. And so Munchkin Gloom is the saga of the unfortunate monsters. <laughs> and, uh, you know, trying to live your life before you get inevitably slaughtered by annoying adventurers. Well, um, that's uh, another box that will find its way onto my gaming shelf. Sure will. And then finally, I am working on a new role-playing game that I will be kickstarting in February of 2015 uh, called Phoenix Dawn Command. Um, And that is a card-based role-playing game. Um, And there's a number of things we're doing with it that are very sort of distinct from the other games I've played. One of the big things is a very different approach to, uh, to death. And uh, character death and sacrifice is actually something that is very concretely sort of part of the story of the game. Okay. 
So, uh, so yeah, that's something I'll be talking about on my website more in the near future. And as I said, we'll be kickstarting it early next year. Awesome. I'm and, uh, looking we'll, forward to that. We'll kind of keep her actually, if you, uh, when you, when you get your Kickstarter up and running, if you should shoot me the link to it, I'll, I'll link it on our, our Facebook page and we'll put it on Twitter too to just kind of get it out there, get the word out there to our, our listeners and, and to make sure that we can support you as best we can because it sounds fantastic. Absolutely. I, I appreciate that. No problem. And I'm very excited about it. It is, as I said, just something that's very different in a number of ways. Uh, from a lot of other games. I'd previously been working on a new sort of campaign setting. Okay. Uh, and I was working on a sort of system neutral campaign setting because, you know, there's a lot of good systems out there. Yeah. Um, and then Phoenix, basically the concept of the story really sort of called for a different sort of system. And so it's something where uh, the system really connects with the story itself as opposed to just being a random thing stuck on top. Sure, sure. Well, like I said, I, I read a little bit about it, and uh, Nick, uh, who unfortunately could not be here tonight, he wanted to be, but he, because of the, our week is crazy this week, and like this last weekend was was Nick's bachelor party, and next weekend he's getting mm. married. So, you know, he's got a crazy week, and so he wanted to be here, but just he can't, he couldn't make it tonight. But he he did a lot of research uh, for for this interview, and uh, he he regaled me quite a bit with uh, some of your some of your previous interviews on different podcasts and whatever. And he uh, he gave me a rundown of what you know some of the stuff that he learned about the 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 game that you're working on and it sounds really interesting so i i'm definitely looking forward to seeing what what can be done with that and i'll probably pick up a copy myself thank you i i look forward to uh getting it out there so your on your website on 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 your website you it's just is it it's just keithbaker.com correct Uh, it's keithbaker.com it's keith Dash Baker.com. Gotcha. You know, it's got a little hyphen in the middle there. I think KeithBaker.com takes you to to some guy who writes travelogues or something like that. But uh, which but is Keith interesting in and in and of its own self. But we want you, so you know, Fair enough. throw that dash in there. Yep. Um, but you do quite a bit of Q and A usually with Eberron, but I, I've seen you do it with other stuff as well. Um, how, how did that kind of come about? Well, the issue is that, as I said, uh, you know, Ebron is the intellectual property of Wizards of the Coast, and so I can't just write new Ebron stuff. You know, I would love to basically just write articles about uh, the things I love in Ebron that haven't been developed, but I can't legitimately do that. Um, But I can at least answer people's questions, you know, and I always say on my site it's completely unofficial, uh, sometimes things I say are different from what you'd find in canon because I'm going to tell you how I do a thing. Um, and so mainly it's just I love Eberron. And if there's no opportunity to actually um, you know, write about it officially, I'd like to at least keep supporting the people who are still playing it. So as far as, as, far as your contribu- uh, contributions to... Eberron in the future, and you know what what you've done for like fourth edition after you mm-hmm. know after fourth the, the advent of fourth edition. Um, do they does Watsi basically treat you like a, a freelancer? How does that work? 
I mean, essentially they do. Uh, certainly by the contract, um, yeah. you know, they, they own the rights. Sure. Uh, so they don't have to, to contact me at all. You know, they could just go off and make an Ebron book and not even talk to me. Um, given that, they've always been pretty good about um, keeping me in the loop and bringing me in on discussions. You know, there were certainly some things in fourth edition that it originally could have gone a number of different ways. And uh, there were a number of things I had strong opinions on and, and they listened. So like I said, it's a, it is a freelance relationship, um, but it's always been a pretty, uh, a pretty good one. Good. Glad to hear that. I, you know, I, you hear all kinds of things with any any company. It doesn't matter who it is, um, and you you hope that, particularly since you know, like Watsi in particular, owns one of my favorite systems of all time. You know, mm-hmm. owns the IP to one of my favorite end campaign settings, for that matter. Mm-hmm. That that you you hope that they're a good company, and you hope that they treat their people well. So, but I've always heard very positive things about Watsi, so it's good to hear that. And, and I mean, the fact of the matter is, it is the case that there are some decisions made about Eberron that you know I myself would do differently. But that doesn't mean either that I don't understand why they're making them that way, or that you know people can't just uh, do what they want on their own. So sure. yeah, certainly. As I said, certainly they've always listened to me when I've had something to say, even if we haven't always uh, had a hundred percent agreement. Fair enough. So, and it, since we're kind of on the topic of, of your relationship with Wizards of the Coast and you know releasing Eberron, you know, we you, I know you've told the story of how it came to be a million times, so I'm not going to ask you to tell it again because if people really want to know, they can just go look up one of your other interviews. It's really not that difficult to find. Absolutely. But. My question to you is, is that since you've kind of, you know, you created Eberron, you, you know, you won, you won the big campaign setting contest that they had in what was like 2004? Mm-hmm. 2004? Yeah, 2004. I think 2003, actually. But was it 2003? Okay. I, mean, I think the, the setting search was in 2003 and it came out in 2004. That's correct. That's correct. Um, and, you know, as a result, you kind of became this, this, uh, gaming celebrity, this campaign setting, you know, you, you had mm-hmm. this thing. Had, have you had any moments during your, you know, your travels in 2009, during the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the 3.5, just pumping out book after book after book about, you know, about Eberron. Have you ever had a moment where you, you, you met somebody that you went, oh my God, you're so-and-so. Holy crap, I'm totally geeking out right now. Well, I mean, that sort of thing happens to me uh, to a certain degree, more than one might expect, just because I don't think of myself as a gaming superstar, if you will. So I still, when I run into someone like Robin Laws, who has made some of my favorite systems, sure. I always feel kind of tongue-tied and, oh my God, it's Robin Laws, and I'm talking to Robin Laws, you know, sort of thing. So, so definitely, you know, I've had the opportunity to meet and work with uh, a lot of other great designers. I think a, a good example of this would be I did some early concept work on 13th Age. Ooh. And so I spent a couple weeks hanging out with Rob Painso and Jonathan Tweet. And I hadn't met Jonathan before. And Over the Edge is one of my favorite role-playing games. And so that was the sort of, oh, my God, here I am just hanging out shooting shit with, uh, with Jonathan Tweet. Um... Beyond that, I'm trying to think. I mean, there's certainly been times 
that you know you just run into people, especially doing the charity work. Um, you know, I end up running games for celebrities and such, and it's always just amazing when you find someone. I think it was actually um, I was on a boat of all things, and I met. Peter Sagal from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Ooh. Uh, and turned out that he and his kids are Gloom fans. Really? And wow. it was just sort of, it's just one of those things where, you know, I sort of know what to expect from uh, people sort of in our, our sphere, but I don't always see someone like, oh, hey, NPR host, bet he's a big gamer, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, I remember actually one of the early Charity 20 uh, sessions, we had uh, a guy named Taylor Maine uh, playing d and And he played Sabretooth in the first oh, couple of yes. uh, yep. X-Men movies, and he's a wrestler, I think. Yep. And he's a big guy. And again, he's not a guy you sort of look at and say, yeah, bet, bet he, you know, bet he'd play a wizard. You know, and so, yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of moments like that when it's just and and that was really the whole point of my traveling around in 2009 was basically just wanting to see we have this image of what a gamer is and wanting to basically travel around the states and the world and just try to meet as many different gamers from as many different sort of walks of life and countries as possible and, you know, you sort of get to see gamers, you know, they're not just nerds in the basement. You know, you've got prison guards, soldiers, uh, you know, adult entertainment uh, stars, um, lawyers, oh, yeah. I, I engineers. It, I hit it with my axe as a... As a vidcast that's just porn stars playing D&D. Yeah, and actually uh, Satine Phoenix, who's one of the uh, people from I Hit It With My Axe, is one of the main organizers of Charity 20. Oh, really? Yep. Cool. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've played with them before, and uh, on my 2009 tour, I hang out oh. with uh, Zach and, um, and got to play with the Axe crew. Cool. So, that's sort of my point, is again, we have you know, these images, but in reality, gamers can be NPR hosts and, uh, you know, like I said, Coca-Cola marketing executives in Bulgaria. Nice. So, wow. uh, so it was very interesting. I do have a question, and this one's going to be putting you on the spot because it wasn't okay. actually on the little outline we sent you. But oh, oh. If, if you could fill out your gaming table mm -hmm. with anybody, mm -hmm. game designers, celebrities – who would you, say six players, who would you have at your gaming table? All right, well, I would start with Joe Hill because I'm a huge fan of Lock and Key. Nice. Uh, so that one's easy. And to me, it's, it's, it's sort of tough because, you know, I don't tend to sort of have people stuck in my mind that way. I mean, I'd love to get, let's say, we'll throw in Joss Whedon just because, hey, Hey, I'd love to meet him. Yeah. Uh, and again, and he's clearly a guy who can be clever uh, when he wants to be. Yep. Um, as I say, I'm just trying to think of, of people who are both entertaining. I'm going to throw in just a guy who's uh, going to be at the Charity 20, but uh, just a fun guy to hang out with is Joseph Scrimshaw, who's a comedian. 
uh, on nerdy topics. And again, just, just a fun guy. Um, and let's see. I'd have to probably then add in, you know, go back to the gaming side of things and throw in, I'll just round it out with James Ernest, uh, Rob Hainso, and, and Robin Laws. There you go. Very nice. That would be a very interesting game, I think. <laughs> so, moving on, I mean, I know we, we've, we've touched on Eberron a little bit, um, and, uh, I'd like to kind of get into it just a little bit more in depth. We don't want to spend too much time on it because, again, you, you, you've covered this quite a bit in previous interviews. But sure I am a very, very hardcore fan of Eberron, and I have been since it came out. And it, it's basically my preferred setting at this point. Um, we, Me too. I, I know, right? Crazy. <laughs> but any game, any new game that I start, I immediately think, how can I, you know, how can I, you know, I have this concept for a game. How can I make that work in Eberron? Uh, just because that's the way my brain thinks now. And uh, we actually had uh, a series of episodes prior to this one where we, we cover each of the hosts tackled a campaign setting. So I tackled Eberron <laughs> since it was my preferred system. Matt tackled Forgotten Realms because that was kind of what he, you know, he grew up playing and all of that. And our other host, Nick, tackled, you know, just kind of generic campaign settings using your own com- custom campaign setting and building your own world. But uh, I just wanted to touch on real quick that, you know, Eberron really is one of my favorites, and part of it is because of the aspect of that you literally can take any type of game and find a place for it in Eberron. Mm-hmm. You know, you can run a vaguely steampunk game. You can run a high-intrigue game, a political game, all these things, and throw it into Eberron. And that was one of the things that I really enjoyed. Plus, one of the things that I, I know you've talked about in other, other shows is the fact that it's completely open-ended. There's no mm-hmm. official canon up after the campaign start. Mm-hmm. And I'll say that that was actually uh, a lesson I picked up from Over the Edge, uh, which is one of my favorite role-playing systems and one I've actually uh, used to run Eberron in. Um, and that's a game where it's all about conspiracies and weirdness and X-Files, Illuminati, Twilight Zone sort of stuff. Um, and part of the issue of it is, well, when you're dealing with conspiracies, once you've read the book, how do you play the game anymore? Right. Mm -hmm. And their approach was to, with a lot of things, present ideas or multiple suggestions so it's up to the game master to decide what's the answer here. So when I play with someone else, well, I don't know. Maybe they're doing something different. And so, I mean, that was very much the sort of approach to the morning in Eberron is the point of the morning is the impact the event had on the setting as a whole. What actually caused it, we don't really need a canon answer to that. Right. Every game master, you know, I can, again, rattle off six different possibilities off the top of my head, and any one of those could inspire a series of adventures. But there's no reason we have to pick one of them to be the right one. For sure. And that's definitely where there's a bunch of things in Eberron where it's like that. Where I said, well, there's no reason we have to nail this particular piece down. I have to say the thing that 
<clears throat> really kind of uh, caught my my eye with Eberron mm-hmm. is kind of how level cap the NPCs were. Mm-hmm. So once you started getting to that, you know, you're you're approaching nine, ten, mm-hmm. you start to really feel like you can work with kings and queens or generals or rulers of nations because you're on a par with them, which really mm-hmm. set it aside as Adam said growing up, I was just it was always forgotten realms, always forgotten realms for me. And well you can't go toe to toe with Elminster, you can't go to toe to toe with the symbiote, but you can and, deal with the leaders in Eberron. And that was a very concrete decision, uh, in some ways in reaction to Forgotten Realms. You know, when the Eberron was being developed uh, two of the things that always struck me about Forgotten Realms are the extremely powerful NPCs and the um, importance of the gods in the setting. And so Eberron is a setting in which the players really are ideally going to be the biggest heroes of the age. Uh, and in which gods are distant and, you know, it can be argued, do we even know if they exist? You know, where faith is really an important thing as opposed to gods just being essentially big monsters who show up from time to time. And again, the point was not trying to slam FR, uh, but simply saying that's out there. You know, that's been done. Let's have a setting that lets you tell a kind of story that that doesn't fit in Forgotten Realms. You know, you can't really have a logical story about a you know pursuit of heretics and schisms and such in a setting where we can just go and visit the god and ask him which of these two guys is right. Um, whereas in Eberron, you know, that is very possible. Well, and as a result of, of having a fairly low level, at least for you know Corvair, but uh, having a fairly low level game, you know, with with your kings and queens being roughly CR ten to fifteen, you throw in a character like the Lord of Blades or Lady Vol, mm-hmm. and you have you know, I mean, they're they're just people. They're well, sort of, they're characters, but they're kind of like gods among men, just because yes, they are just you know people, but they're super powerful. Oh, absolutely. There's bad guys in Eberron who who are tough to mess with. But, I mean, another thing that comes to it to me is one of the ideas also was wanting the players to feel like they're pretty cool right out of the gate. And part of that is by having fewer uh, high-level NPCs, at least high-level friendly NPCs, right. uh, and also emphasizing the fact that most NPCs use NPC classes. So if all the people in the city guard, even if they're third or fourth level, if they're only warriors, then even as a second level fighter, you're still kind of badass next to them. Right. Um, And further, the fact of the matter is D&D has this sort of concept that is become ingrained that, oh, a king has to be a badass. Whereas the fact of the matter is when you look at our world, if you take a Delta Force commando and a five-star general and throw him into a ring, who do you think is going to win? Yeah. Now, yeah. you don't have to be powerful to be an influential and important person. And that's where in in, you know, the typical D&D adventure, well the player's going to be the commando, the king can be the general. You know, he's he's got the resources, he's got the influence, but frankly he needs you when he needs someone to actually go in there and beat something up. I think that 
that is uh, kind of leads into the next question just for, I mean, and we kind of covered is just the process for content and the thinking process of how you created the Eberron world. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to kind of uh, skip to the to the next thing and the idea of going from writing the game and, and the content for the game to mm-hmm. transferring to writing your novel. Mm-hmm. So novels are, um, you know, it's a tricky thing when you're writing a novel based in a world because to me, I want... You know, some people don't worry about it, but I want the feeling that if I write a scene in the novel, that is something that could happen in a game. Um, that if I have an artificer, uh, which I do in my first uh, trilogy of novels, the Dreaming Dark series, then anything I have her do, I should be able to at least explain what was that. Right. You know, she never says, oh, I'm casting Magic Missile. But I don't want her to do this amazing thing and then someone say, how can I do that? And I'm like, oh, you can't really. I just made it up. So, you know, one of the little trivia questions uh, I throw out in, in when I do little Eberron trivia contests is there is a scene in that in which the artificer in the first novel, The City of Towers, uh, gets into a fist fight with a minotaur and she casts four infusions and of course, you know, none of these are sort of distinctly mentioned by name, but I'm like, can you tell me which four infusions she, uh, she used there? And, um. And naturally, the last time I read these books was 2007, <laughs> so I'm pretty sure I couldn't do that. No, no, no. <laughs> and the trick of that, you know, the risk of it is so you take my second trilogy, the Thorn books, and I really liked those books a lot because it basically says what happens if you drop Alias or James Bond into a fantasy world. You know, what does a Cold War and espionage look like, um, you know, in D&D? And one of the issues there is so so I figured out, you know, okay, here's this character, here's this, the sort of spells they possess and how you would use them uh, for espionage. One of my favorite things is she has a dagger that is an intelligent dagger with the ability to detect magic and also just if you have a magic weapon of a certain level, it can read any language. That's just like a thing they do. So it can detect scrying and it can detect magic. And the fact of the matter is that purely by game terms, this is not a particularly powerful weapon, but as a spy, it is incredibly awesome. Mm -hmm. And it's just this sort of supporting character in the book and, you know, is basically can always just be like, okay, no one's crying on us or, you know, tell me what this guy, you know, does he have any defenses up and, you know, here's what he's, here's what he's got running. Uh, So it's this incredibly useful tool, but it's a very simple item, you know, game wise. Um, the risk on that was that I wrote that first book during 3.5 and then the system changed over to fourth edition. Yeah. And there were quite a few things about the character that were based on, um, system specific details. Like in the series, there is a somewhat important point that dragons have blind sense. Uh, and have, you know, extremely heightened senses. And, well, when they went to fourth edition, they took that out. And so now I'm writing this book, and it's like, well, to what degree 
am I loyal to the system or the setting or how do I how do I deal with you know this character who suddenly no longer can accurately reflect both systems or do they just have an insane perception score yeah and pretty much I just uh, I just stuck with you know the original character and just continued that through I tried to uh, sort of give a nod to uh, to fourth edition stuff where I could but again there are certain things about the character that it, it's not like you can suddenly say oh well now assassins are all shadow based so suddenly out of nowhere she's got all these shadow powers that she never had before <laughs> Um, but that is the risk writing novels when you get too, too dependent on a system is, well, systems change. I, uh, I have a more specific question pertaining to specifically the Dreaming Dark. Now I've, I've read most of the Eberron novels that are out now. (laughs) I've read all of yours. Um, with the Dreaming Dark, were any of those characters actually based on a role-playing character that you yourself played? Not necessarily the story, but the characters themselves. Nope, none of them were. Okay. Uh, I did, at various times, basically say, okay, so she's a seventh-level artificer, so let's... I, I statted up characters at certain stages of their development, in part, just so I could feel like, realistically, I know what this character is capable of. Sure. Uh, but I have never actually played any of those characters or, uh, or you know, and they're not based off of friends' characters or such. Gotcha. For the record, and I'm going to be spoiling a little bit of the books for people if they haven't read them, but, you know, mm-hmm. come on, it's guys. Been, they've been out been for 10 years. years. Yeah. Um, what you did to the halfling, I was so <laughs> pissed at you. <laughs> I was so pissed at you, which is a good thing because it means I actually enjoyed the character and I was really into the story. But what you did to the halfling just pissed me off. Well, it's it's you know it's the George Martin thing. It's <laughs> if you kill the character nobody cares about, uh, then you know what's the point? Yeah. Uh, and as you know, well, there's more to yes what ends up happening with him than uh, than what happens right away. But when it happened, I had a lot of four-letter words that I would like to have shared with you at the time. I actually think I remember uh, hanging out with Adam when this happened because he—I believe this was this the time you threw the book across the room. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Oh. I heard the story the next day that I was that I was hanging out with him. Fair enough. Well, you know, as I said, I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad you liked the character. Well, I liked. I liked the. I liked the series. I liked. Um, I like the entire book. I liked all the characters. The Artificer is probably one of my favorite characters in any Eberron book that I've read thus far. So uh, I'm still hoping to do... I, I almost did a, a short story with her and Pierce because, you know, we do get a little bit of what's up with uh, the other characters through the Thorn novels. Yep. And so I wanted to do a little of, well, what happened to, to her and Pierce? Where did they go? Um, and I just haven't had an opportunity. And... You know, hopefully that might happen sometime. I'm also still, a lot of people have said they'd like to actually see more of uh, Sheshka, the Queen of Stone. Yep. Uh, and I'd still, you know, it'd be interesting to do a short story uh, from her perspective. Definitely. So speaking of short stories, and this is one thing that I've seen uh, authors like in the gaming industry and also not in the gaming industry, just really uh, going with the idea of, of I have this idea, it's not a full book, let's just do a little short story, throw it online or throw it in an mm-hmm. anthology, and just mm-hmm. the power that a short story can, or the resolution that a short story can bring to an entire character arc. Mm-hmm. 
No, absolutely. And and again, it's the sort of thing for me that I do if I had the rights to do it. You know, uh, I'm just limited by by the fact that I can't write stories about um, you know about Eperon. So uh, it's kind of wacky because you know odds are decent you could probably write a story about Eberron, and as long as you didn't try and sell it or something, uh, probably no one would care. But you know because uh, anything I write is going to have more attention on it. Uh, there's a little more limitations on what I can do. So just out of curiosity, you, you can't obviously write an Eberron book, short story mm-hmm. novel, and publish it. And right. you probably can't even send it out. You know, you can't even put it out there for people to just read mm-hmm. because of, you know, uh, legal reasons. Legal reasons, yeah. But have you? Um, nope. I have written, uh, you know, I have certainly written short stories. Um, I wrote a short story for D&D Online uh, and such. And the point is, I think about the stories. And I also, of course, create stories in the role-playing games that I run for my friends. So, you know, I've never been uh, sort of, if anything, I've never had the time to just sit down and write a story that essentially I can't do anything with. Right. So speaking of D&D Online, um, I so out of all of our friends, like I, out of our, our all of the, the hosts here, really mm-hmm. just being into that PC, MMO, uh, gaming compared to consoles, uh-huh. logging into D&D Online and see the floating peers at the character creation mm-hmm. and just seeing the, the world literally from the pages of the book brought to life on the screen in front of me mm-hmm. i just sat there and just wandered around Stormreach. Yep. <laughs> just just to experience the world far more than any than than the books mm-hmm. were there just literally walking through and just the amount of awe and then calling up adam going you got to try this game <laughs> i mean just just to experience that and I just thought was mesmerizing. I squeeded my pants when I <laughs> first wandered around that game. I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it was pretty well, amazing. And it's a pretty crazy thing for me, just in general, just having anything like that, where it's hey, something that I just has an idea and now it's a thing. So I think the one for me is uh, the miniatures, and there's in particular the Sakura Quarry. And yes. it's this awesome miniature, and I'm like, this is like an action figure that came from my head. <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, it's always a, a crazy awesome moment to have things like that. I, in fact, have that many downstairs right now. I have a couple of them up on my shelf because I just love them so much. I was actually just going to ask. I'm like, do you have just like your little shrine of this is something I created, and damn it, people love this, <laughs> and here it is in multiple ways. Well, I have I have a little army of Warforged minis and stuff like that because I just love them. I will say that actually uh, the biggest thing on that front is every now and then there are people who like Eberron who make things, who uh, send me things. And so I actually have um, uh, uh, um, DDO player who goes by the name of Jaggy uh, has made a holy symbol of the Silver Flame. Nice. That is, you know, a little metal arrowhead uh, that she actually sculpted. So it is a little metal uh, symbol, and I have that up on the wall just because it really could just come right out of the world. That's freaking so. neat. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. I ha- oh, my, I think my favorite, just real quick, my favorite mini out of the, the entire line that they did was the Warforged Titan mini. Yeah, I got that right over next to... It, it's flanked by Sakura right now. Uh, but, yep, that is a pretty fantastic mini. So... I think I'm gonna I'm gonna move us on and you okay. talked a little bit. Um, okay. So besides Eberron mm-hmm. and and D and D, just to hear a little bit about the the other systems that you spoke about, like what is like your Ixo facto? I want to do something. I just want to have fun with the friends. What are you gonna grab? Well, I mean, if I just want to grab something and have fun with friends, one of the things I grab would be Fiasco. Uh, giant fiasco. fiasco. Uh, fantastic, fantastic game, fantastic system. Just because you know you don't need any prep. Yep. And I've made a couple play sets. Uh, one of the things I did when I was developing a new campaign setting was the equivalent of basically saying, "Well, I'm going to make a Sharn uh, play set, and then just play it with a bunch of people because we will develop stories." Nice. So. Uh, so there's this one sort of little setting, you know, the city I've developed uh, that a lot of the details I developed out of playing Fiasco with people. Um, so that's a, a nice, quick, let's just do something um, setting or not setting system. I love Over the Edge uh, in part because it is also a very quick system to pick up and write something for. Uh, so that's one that I could pretty much, you know, give me an hour and I'll whip together an over-the-edge adventure. And just going to the default setting, it's one I quite enjoy of being modern day, but just every weird thing you can imagine, you can find a place for it. Um, and I've always liked conspiracies and, uh, you know, Twilight zone sort of stuff. Certainly used to, you know, learned to, to cheat playing games from playing Illuminati when I was, uh, you know, much younger. Um, and so Over the Edge is another, I'll say another one that I've actually enjoyed and played a uh, certain amount of recently was uh, Lady Blackbird. Um, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. It is a, an indie system that you can actually download as a free PDF. Oh. Uh, and actually, my friend Will Hindmarch uh, did a cyberpunk hack of it. Uh, called Always Never Now. And that is one of my favorite role-playing things I've ever played in. Um, and it's something he has up at RPG Now. Um, now yeah, I think it's RPG Now. Drive through RPG, one of those. Um, I think if you go uh, to one, you wind up at the other. I don't remember. Yeah, whichever it is, he has it up as a, as a pay-what-you-want uh, download, and it is absolutely worth it. It is uh, is really a fantastic experience. I'll look it up. Um, when I was younger, I played a whole lot of Hero System in all its various incarnations. I've played a Hero System. I'm not honestly a fan, but mm-hmm. that you know, I, I, from what I understand, most people either people love it or hate it. So, well, it, it, I was playing it before GURPS came out. And at the time, you know, when the other things I'd been playing were things like Call of Cthulhu and Dungeons and Dragons, it was the fact that you could just sort of completely build whatever kind of character you wanted uh, that was what drew me to it. And the ability to sort of have an idea that doesn't really fit classes or races, Mm -hmm. 
but I can tweak it around and make it work. And that, I think, was what drew us to, to Hero back in the day. Sure. Now there's a lot more systems that grant that kind of flexibility. Cool. I do have to say, especially being younger, it was nice having a system. And for me, it was GURPS mm-hmm. rather than Hero. But having that one system that, you know, being that cheap 15-year-old, you can buy <laughs> the books that it's going to work for what any for, for whatever you want. Yeah, one of my favorite campaigns I ran was uh, a campaign where I basically told the players it's going to be a cyberpunk superhero game, uh, so sort of like Judge Dredd, you know, so just make a 200-point hero character with these limitations. And what I didn't tell them was that it was actually essentially a Cthulhu game. Hmm. Um, And, of course, I, you know, got away with that mainly because I knew the players and knew that they would get into it. Uh, but it was really a horror campaign. And it was one of the best sort of horror experiences uh, I've run, in part because the players were willing to be engaged. You know, they were uh, happy to do it. But at the same time, they weren't expecting it and didn't know what was coming. And, you know, part of the, the toughness of Call of Cthulhu is the players know they're playing Call of Cthulhu. And here you had the advantage that the players didn't know it, and so when things started getting strange, it was, wow, we have no idea what's around the next corner or what's going to happen next. Very cool. That is definitely a very, very awesome idea, and I wish Adam hadn't heard it, so now I can't feel that. (laughs) I won't tell anybody. Although you know Nick is into this episode, too, so... There you go. (laughs) So for um, so so novels and, and you've wrote uh, done your campaigns and you know multiple settings that you're working on. What advice do you have for mm-hmm. people that are aspiring to do that, aspiring to to fill the shoes of or following the footsteps that you've created? Uh, well, I mean, it all depends. If if it's a question of creating things for your, you know, friends and local group, or if you're creating things because you want uh, to, you know, be the next Ed Greenwood. Um, because the main thing is, you know, I mean, it's certainly not easy to get that big sort of a footprint. I was really, really lucky uh, with Eberron, and I personally always knew I wanted to be a game designer. And I've been doing some freelance work before Eberron, uh, but I never expected to have something that would be, you know, such a big success. And I was perfectly prepared to, to not, you know, I mean, again, you should do gaming is something you should do because you love it and you love creating stories, not because you want, you know, fame and fortune. Um, because, Hey, if you're lucky, you'll get the fame and fortune, but, uh, you know, you can always get the getting to create something you love. Um, it's certainly the thing of basically be prepared to start start small. You know, uh, there's a lot of, if you go to EM World or um, RPG.net, uh, there's a lot of publishers uh, who are looking for people to contribute to things, to write small things. Uh, I got my first publication in... Um, from Atlas Games for Over the Edge, just writing a, a piece for an Over the Edge anthology. 
And that in turn got me connections. You know, I got to know the people at Atlas. I got some experience. I got to show them I could meet a deadline. Uh, and then through them, I met other people, so on and so on. Um, but again, you don't have to start with the campaign setting. Start by writing a few smaller things and, you know, sort of getting your feet wet and learning what's involved. Um, RPG Superstar is, you know, a great way to, again, sort of work on a different variety of things and get some exposure there. Um, certainly if you picked any single aspect of, of a thing, you know, world building, creating a religion, things like that, I could, I could get much more specific in there. Uh, but basically it is all about, you know, my encouragement is start small, but get online, especially on the forums and you can find people who are looking, uh, looking for writers and places to get your things out there. Uh, just don't. You know, in this age, it is possible to launch a Kickstarter and try and sell your campaign setting right away. But if nobody has ever heard of you before, it's going to be hard to get that to reach to um, all the people you like it to. And so just getting some little things out there, even if they feel small, is a way to get people to start to know who you were. And as I said, with Eberron, even though I had a much smaller audience, I'd written a bunch of things for Goodman Games and Atlas Games. And, you know, I had a bunch of people who were fans of what I did. And the kind of people who, if I had done a Kickstarter back then, if it had existed, would have said, oh, then let's check that out. I want to see what Keith would do with the whole, the whole world. Um, so I'm just saying definitely don't be afraid to start small, if that makes any sense. That does, no, I actually. think that's a, I think that's a great, uh, a great, uh, a great way to look at it. Everybody wants to be the, the next big thing, but everyone has to pay their dues, so to speak. Well, and it's just a matter of, you know, again, just do some blog posts, just, uh, post on forums, just things that get people... Part of the thing about something like a campaign setting is it's a huge amount of work to do, and it's a huge amount of work to read. Whereas, on the other hand, uh, if you write a page that is your cool take on wood elves, and I read that, and I'm like, wow, this is cool. I want to see what this guy is going to do in a bigger you know, spectrum. Again, it's sort of you can reach a lot of people uh, on a small scale before you invest on the huge level. And the turnaround on that is in this age of Kickstarter, it's also very possible for people to bite off more than they can chew. Um, with the game I'm working on that I'm planning to kickstart, you know, our goal is to have the game very close to done by the time we kickstart it. Cause I can actually afford to do that. Uh, I've certainly seen a lot of people who basically say, Oh, I could probably do this with X amount of money. And then because they've never done it before, well, then they realize, oh, there was a lot more things I had to do than I, I really calculated on. And so you definitely want to be careful with Kickstarter to, to don't jump in before you know what you're doing. Makes sense. So what are your thoughts? I mean, there's been a lot of stuff coming out lately having to do with anti-heroes you know your mm -hmm. your your kind of dark horse your batman character your wolverine you know and obviously those two characters have been around for quite some time mm -hmm. but their popularity has has skyrocketed within the last probably dozen or so years 
Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, do you do you, do you have any specific uh, insights into that particular? Idea? Well, it's definitely an interesting thing. I also work in computer game design, and it's certainly something that comes up when I'm helping people develop character lists and such. Is saying, well, you know, you can't all have Jedi's. Some people are going to want to play Sith. You know, um, and I think the world is just people have a broader sort of scope of uh, morality and good and evil and shades of gray and such. And I would go back and say you can look all the way back to let's take the Maltese Falcon and Sam Spade. Mm -hmm. And he's definitely really a classic anti-hero oh, yeah. he's a protagonist but he's definitely not the nicest guy and so i mean i don't feel that it's almost like i would say this is something that's been around for a long time and it's just slowly creeping more heavily into popular culture if that makes sense it does you know, but this kind of character has always appealed uh, to a certain people and in part it's because i think part of the thing about anti-heroes is a hero like Superman who lives up to this incredible sort of code of ethics and things like that is in some ways hard for us to identify with because we don't live up, most people, to that, that degree of, uh, you know, aspiration and that you can basically look at Superman and Wolverine and say, yeah, I'm just more of a Wolverine sort of guy. I just, I just kill that guy in that situation. You know, uh, this is, of course, you've got the slight go between on that on someone like Batman, who is a sinister hero, if you will, but also has a very strict code of ethics sure. and uh, things he won't do. Um, but I also think that it's, it's just that the world itself is also a more complex place. And so it's getting to a place where just taking things like, uh, the Winter Soldier, um, where what we're basically saying is there was a time when a Boy Scout hero like Captain America made sense, and that was sort of the tone the world itself had. This is what we believed our heroes would be like, and that nowadays we're realizing it's not so easy to, to have things be that two-dimensional. Um, and so we're looking for heroes that have more complexity and depth. Sure. I definitely see that. So, I, uh, oh, go I ahead. Found, yeah, go on, go on. Oh, no, you. I was just going to say, I mean, I found The Winter Soldier was interesting. Someone, uh, having seen it, sort of said to me, well, for a movie called The Winter Soldier, it seems like The Winter Soldier is not in the movie that much. And the point to me is that the allegorical meaning of The Winter Soldier is the soldier who will fight in the winter as well as the summer. You know, the person who's not just the fair weather guy, but... He'll stick, they stick through it when things are tough. Uh, and that to me, the point of that movie is that ca it's Captain America having to show that he is a winter soldier. That, you know, the world isn't the way he wants it to be, but he's going to, to see it through. Not everything is sunshine and lollipops, and you gotta kinda stick right. it out no matter what. And so the point is, it's Captain America the Winter Soldier. The fact that there is a character who is called the Winter Soldier is actually almost secondary to that title. I had but, never thought of it before, but that makes perfect sense. Like I said, if you look into the origin of the phrase, it's because 
think it was Thomas Paine, although I'm not sure, you know, basically sort of complaining about summer soldiers who, you know, will only fight when the weather is good and when times are easy. And as I say, to me, it is about Captain America having to be the winter soldier, you know, fighting through a time when things are hard and not what he wants them to be. I I think that is, yeah, just a brilliant way to look at it. Uh, I'd say I have no idea if that is, in fact, what they intended, but it's what struck me. So there you go. I'm, I'm going to go with it. I'm going to use that. I'm going to blow people's minds at work tomorrow. That's a good thought. And you know what? Even if it isn't what they intended, um, they can totally take credit for it. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what we meant to do. Yep. So speaking of movies, and this is this was like actually my first question when I was informed that we were going to get the opportunity to speak with you. Mm-hmm. You get to cast... The Eberron movie. I wish I could, but honestly, I just don't have uh, a perfect head for uh, for actors. Well, I will say that I actually have a picture. Back in the day, I did a casting call for The Dreaming Dark, and I basically said, okay, I want everybody to sort of vote. Who would you have... Uh, in these roles and, and sort of threw my images uh, up there as well. And I think the cast we ended up there was um, uh, Nathan Fillion as Dane and Gillian Anderson as uh, Lee. And I actually have a picture up on my old website. It's a little hard to track down that an artist, uh, my friend Lee Moyer, who designed the Dragon Marks, actually did of the cast of the Dreaming Dark, uh, including the two of them. Cool. Um, I was thinking about, well, who would I do as Thorn if I had to pick a, uh, pick a Thorn these days? Uh, and I have to say, I really quite liked, um, Emily Blunt in Edge of Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So I'd at least be willing to, uh, consider her. Um, but like I said, it's hard for me just off the top of my head to, like, run through, okay, what are a bunch of, um, of people who would sort of fit these roles. It's not how I tend to sort of immediately think of my characters. Um, I honestly have the tougher time of just thinking if, if someone came up to me and said, you have, you know, $20 million to make an Ebron movie. I need a script by tomorrow. What plot I'd want to go with, because it is the case that everyone, you know, can be the over the top pulp adventure. It can be the gritty, dark, uh, you know, noir sort of thing. And I'm not sure sort of which of those directions I'd rather go with it. Yeah. There's just thinking about it from my own perspective as a GM that <laughs> frequently, frequently runs an Eberron. I don't even know what I'd want to do. I just look well, at it. What I'm saying is there's so many sort of compelling stories that uh, it's hard to know which way, but but who would you cast in an Eberron movie? Fuck. Uh, well, <laughs> first of all, character what like antagonist wise, I'd have to use the Lord of Blades. Well, there's a funny story about that, if you don't mind my no, sharing well, not at all. Which is that uh, originally when I did the first draft of the Dreaming Dark, just the sort of overview of this, the trilogy. Uh, the plan was to have the Lord of Blades be a primary antagonist. Hmm. And when I started writing the second book, 
uh, wizards came by and said, eh, actually, we really don't want you using the Lord of Blades. Um, which makes sense to a certain degree to me because he is, in the books, left somewhat open, as you can decide what his story is and what he's like. And if so early in the um, the life of the campaign setting, I'd put out, so to speak, a canon version of him that might have limited people's ability um, to sort of take him in their own direction. But at the time, I was sort of like, um, but that was sort of where the story was going. And actually, in those novels, the character of Harmattan is basically who I came up with when I'm like, well, if I can't use the Lord of Blades, I need a new Warforged villain. Right. Uh, and that's that's sort of how he ended up coming into existence. And I'm actually quite happy with him because he is a very different sort yes. of character. Uh, and he's just a sort of smaller scale operator, but I think he's a very interesting character. Um, but yeah, as I said, originally when that was first plotted out, it was supposed to be the Lord of Blades. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, I like... I like the Warforged race just in general because it seems it, to me it's a very kind of evocative race to, to play. I mean, my favorite character of all time at this point is a Warforged. Um, we've started playing at level one. He's <laughs> level twenty-one right now, you know, and we've been playing off and on for the last ten years. What class? I went fighter initially, and then I went occult slayer. Yeah, see, I, I have a Warforged artificer I've played a, a number of times that I quite like. Um. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, the Warforce to me, there's just a lot of interesting things you can do with them. I'll go ahead and say that, you know, I loved, uh, Blade Runner, uh, and, you know, it's sort of a lot of questions there to me of you're built for a war, and now the war's over, and people don't really want, you know, what do you do? This was, this was your purpose, and what do you do now? What are you? We rec- we recently are we're still playing, but we haven't played in a while. Uh, had a game where one of the one of the characters, her cohort, was the Lord of Blades before he was the Lord of Blades. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the best thing is, is that the game originally started out with me, Nick, and Matt, the three hosts of, of mm-hmm. main, main hosts of the show, were round robin GMing. Mm-hmm. So we'd sit down periodically and kind of shoot out ideas or whatever. And so we decided we were going to do this without te- telling her we were going to do this. Right. So, you know, we introduced this Warforged character that she eventually took as her cohort. And, but he was always, from the very beginning, he was always just very, you know, he had a very anti-breather, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. uh, dogma. And then this last game that we played, not the last one, but the time before that, he basically, it was right at the end, it was basically when the, the morning happened, he betrayed the entire group, killed off one of our characters, and then went and blew mm-hmm. up Seer, you know, so... <laughs> Yeah, I have a feeling I've actually heard about that uh, that campaign because I feel like I've specifically heard uh, the the story of him as a cohort. So uh, so yeah, I think I think you have become legendary. Excellent, <laughs> I love it. Good, good, good. So um, getting away from from RPGs in general, uh, I, I'm going to ask you more general questions in a second, but I'm going to ask uh, at least two specific questions: Marvel or DC? Uh, as a kid, always Marvel. Um, growing up, you know, so sort of these days, uh, definitely, as I say, just just the Marvel characters always appealed to me more. It was interesting. I was just talking to someone and saying, as when I was young, I actually read. I didn't read the X Men until I got into high school, okay. but 
when I was younger than that, I actually read the Inhumans. Yes. Back when they had a comic. And to me, there's a certain overlap there of, you know, these are these sort of edgy outcasts, uh, you know, but they're a lot weirder and uh, more colorful than, than the X-Men. And I think that appealed to me uh, a lot. But I never really got that much into to DC when I was younger. I think in part because the characters are, in a sense, more you know, sort of Superman and Batman, you know, very sort of iconic. Um, these days, I definitely tend to go, you know, for sort of slightly deeper things. So, as I said earlier in the, the episode, Mock and Key by Joe Hill is yep. one of my favorite things of the last decade. I also generally love things like Astro City. Uh, I've been really enjoying Saga. Um... And so, you know, tending to get more into the the weird stuff, though, I do still catch up on uh, both Marvel and DC. Okay. Sandman at all? Uh, Sandman, yeah, absolutely. Well, see, that's the thing. It's Vertigo in general. So uh, Sandman I discovered in college and absolutely love it, own everything. And Doom Patrol uh, under yeah. Grant Morrison uh, also, you know, for his tenure on it. One of my favorite things out there. Um, Hellboy. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, certainly, you know, lots and lots of things out there. I just recently reread Transmetropolitan. Um, So all sorts of things that that I like. uh, But certainly of, uh, you know, recently it's been... um, well, actually, I'll, I'll say just going back to, to more of them with DC. Recently, I also really liked um, Hawkeye, My Life as a Weapon. Okay. I've been enjoying, and um, there's another one, The Superior Foes of Spider-Man, I've read through recently. And I generally like things that, that let us see things from the villain side. I really liked the Thunderbolts uh, when that came out. Yeah. So, you know, I always like mixing things up a little like that. Sure, sure. So... Tell us a little bit more. I mean, like, what do you watch on TV? What movies do you prefer to go to? Well, what books to do you say, read? I say a funny thing about that, of course, is I've always traditionally been more of a Marvel guy than a DC guy, although I will also go back and say I read The Suicide Squad uh, quite uh, loyally back in the day. Um, but TV, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has definitely been picking up but I was surprised to find that I was much more uh, I much I enjoyed Arrow much more than Agents of Shield, um, even though I've never been a Green Arrow fan at all. But I really appreciated the sort of level of detail they dropped into the world, and they did a, a very clever job of uh, storytelling with the flashbacks and such. Yes. So I really enjoyed uh, Arrow. I'm I, you know, going to check out The Flash and see where they go with it. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has certainly picked up dramatically, um, so that's good. Um, certainly just in things that are, are sort of high points. I love True Detective. You know, That's certainly my favorite thing of the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always been a sort of Lovecraftian uh, fan, and, you know, it's that matter of they managed to do that good job of telling something that is essentially a, a Lovecraft story without, you know, you knowing at the start that's what it is. Yeah. And without getting too deeply weird 
uh, and exotic, but both the story and just the scenery of it. It's just such a beautiful, you know, sort of imagery. Going uh, beyond that, I will say that uh, science fiction-wise, in terms of long-term things, one of my favorite shows was um, the second season specifically of the Sarah Connor Chronicles, the Terminator TV show. The first season, you know, was kind of like Terminator of the Week, whatever. But the second season really was one of the better time travel uh, implementations of time travel I've seen and really took that universe and made it a whole lot deeper. Uh, you know, just taking it from this sort of binary, you know, humans versus machines and really sort of exploring. But what sort of things would develop in that? And if you can change the future, how do you know you haven't already changed the future? And do the people in the future you've changed it to want to change it back? Um, so I thought that was really good. As I said, I really enjoyed Edge of Tomorrow uh, more recently. Uh, Twin Peaks, another show, if I if I go back in time, <laughs> I quite enjoyed it. And I hear that's coming out with some kind of new follow-up, so I'm curious about that. I don't remember if it's a miniseries or if it's actually going to be a syndicated, not syndicated, but... I think, I think it's going to be like on Showtime or something. I think they've said like nine okay. episodes or something like yeah. that. So I don't really... all the original cast back? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's one of those questions where it's hard to me to know whether they can really recapture it, in part because now you've had so many things like True Detective, for example, you know, at the time, there really wasn't much else like it. Yeah. And now we've had so many things that have been inspired by it that, well, sometimes something that's inspired by something actually does it better, yeah. you know? So um, trying to think if there's anything else. I watched Continuum recently, uh, but I there, just, just could not get into that. Yeah, and that the thing to me is there it was a thing where I liked the promise of it, but then they sort of failed to deliver on it. And in comparison... Uh, as someone who likes time travel, Sarah Connor is just much better. Right. Uh, and obviously, you know, I love anything Joss Whedon has touched. Um, so, yeah. So, do, do you still weep over Firefly? Uh, I don't weep over it, but uh, it is it is certainly something where it's sad just because especially the last episode is so strong. Yeah. Uh, and the main thing to me about Firefly, so so let's turn this around to Game of Thrones as well, is the thing to me about Firefly is I could just watch these characters paint a wall. You know, that what I loved about the show is the characters were so compelling, the dialogue was so good, that I almost didn't really care what they were doing. Right. I just liked sharing an hour with them. Um, Game of Thrones to me is something where I'm watching that needless to say. And I really am at a point where I hope the show is going to diverge from the books because I really liked the first couple of books. And then I really felt the last couple, the progress of the story has just slowed to such an incremental crawl that when I first started reading it, I could see where the story was going. And I liked that. And I'm like, okay, this is the kind of story we're telling. This is where it's going to go. And then just having 14 years pass, and we still haven't gotten to the end, for crying out loud, <laughs> uh, that I would say Game of Thrones is sort of just reaching the point where I'm like, okay, now let's 
let's actually speed it up instead of slowing it down. And I feel that they've given some hints that's where they're going, but we'll see. Well, and speaking from somebody that, you know, I, I worked at a bookstore for many, many years, and, you know, I think, you know, it is 14 years later and it has taken this long, but also Martin takes a long time to write his books. Well, the thing that disappoints me about it is that the first two books, what I enjoyed about them so much is reading the second book and then going back and reading the first book again you realize that he's planted all these things that you didn't see the first time you read it because you had no context. Mm -hmm. And it hints at all these bigger things that he has in his head that are really interesting. So, for example, the question of who Jon Snow's parents are. Mm -hmm. And when you just read the first book, you don't even realize that's a question. Right. And then you read the second book and you go back and say, oh, wait a second. Whoa, there's a whole lot of clues being dropped here that it's not what we think. And I remember when the third book came out, having a lot of really interesting discussions with people about, okay, here's how you can trace all the proof of who it actually is. And then it's 14 years later and you still haven't given us the answer. Mm. And so this is what I'm saying is it's just like game mastering is – if I have this really cool plot in my head, but then I never actually share it with the players, there's going to come a point at where they're just not going to care anymore. And so that's what I'm saying is 10 years ago, I was really into the question of who Jon Snow's parents are. And now I'm like, whatever. You know, I mean, it, if the answer is finally pro- uh, comes out, I will either say, wow, I was right 10 years ago or, huh, you know, something else. I, it's, it's been too long. Gotcha. So even being too long, mm-hmm. who do you think his parents are? Oh, I think his parents are Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanna Stark. I am in that boat with you 100%. And, and you know, back in the day, that was a – you had to really explain it to people of all the, the proofs on that. And as I said, I still definitely think that's the case, but I just feel we've had to wait a little too long to get there. What's interesting to me is that I just don't feel they can do that in the show because they haven't given us any of the, the cool little hints that would make us, you know, we just, neither of those characters are characters that we've really got any real sense of in the show. So I think they're just not going to make it part of the story, really. I can see that. I mean, there's there's obviously elements that they have to leave out because of time and flow and, and all that stuff. but. And, and I'm just saying it's not that it may not end up being the case in the, the show, but, I mean, it's not going to be a thing. Back ten years ago, when that if that was revealed, a whole lot of people would have gone, whoa, where did that come from? And I'm just saying if they put it into the show, they're just going to do it and just say, oh, by the way, this is, this is what the deal is. And it's not going to be like a sort of stunning all the pieces fall into place. So... Before I ask my final question, I am going to ask this one more. Mm-hmm. You've been interviewed a number of times on various podcasts. You've gone around the country and you've talked with people and people have asked you questions. Um, is there anything that you have wanted to be asked but never have been? Hmm. Uh, and you think I'd have sort of planned ahead and come up with a perfect answer for this question. <laughs> well, it's not an easy. Um, it's not an easy question to answer, and I. I, I I will give you that. It is not an easy question to answer. Uh, 
strangely, I, I, you know, don't really have a good answer. I mean, part of the reason why I don't is that I have been doing Q&As on Eberron for so long now that I've gotten to, to discuss a whole lot of, of things. And when I do those, I do talk about, you know, my view of the world and how I want things to be. And so I have sort of the opportunity to tell people, you know, the things they might not get just reading the books and um, or reading the novels. And so, you know, part of what I'd say is, well, go to Keith-Baker.com and, and read through some of the Q&As and you'll see the questions uh, I wanted people to ask. And, you know, another question is people could say, are you ever going to do anything with all that stuff you did in 2009 traveling around the world? And the answer to that is, I hope so, one of these days. It was a really interesting journey. Uh, I just don't feel I quite finished it. I don't feel I was able to go to... I had actually 300 invitations to different parts of the world, and I just don't feel I had the chance to go to enough of them. So uh, so that's sort of a journey I feel was unfinished, and I'd love to have a chance to continue that sometime if I ever had time and money. Fair enough. The, um, the last question here that I have, and mm-hmm. um, it certainly by no means has to end this whole thing, but the last <laughs> question I have written down is uh, what, what are your thoughts on the future of gaming? I mean, now that, that geek culture has kind of become popular culture, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not speaking necessarily because D&D still has a stigma, mm-hmm. and role-playing in general kind of has a stigma, but, you know, superhero movies, everybody is going to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everybody's going to them. They're picking up the comics. They're reading the books. You know, people are, are, are you know, things are being made. You know, books that you know came out when we were young are now being made into movies and all that stuff. What What are your thoughts on the future? Or, you know, what lies ahead for us? I mean, certainly, this? I think Game of Thrones and Guardians of the Galaxy are two very optimistic things about that. Of Game of Thrones being. Uh, you know, a concretely fantasy story and yet also managing to be a very popular uh, mainstream TV show uh, is good in terms of, again, getting the idea that people can take fantasy seriously. And that's certainly something which has been a long time coming. Lord of the Rings really has helped with that as well. You know, I mean, obviously it's a much older story, but I mean, the success of those movies has helped make, you know, liking fantasy not... Uh, such a shameful thing. Guardians of the Galaxy, just to say that, hey, we're not just a comic movie, we're like a bizarre, obscure comic movie. Um, and to me, I mean, I think it is just a matter of just saying having the people who create popular culture being able to look at some of these things as there's a broader niche here than we think, you know, means they're going to be more willing to create another, you know, I, I've heard, I think it's name of the wind or Mistborn. I've heard, you know, rumors about both of those, mm-hmm. uh, having TV shows and, um, you know, that kind of thing. There's just much greater opportunity for people to, uh, to take a new, uh, speculative fiction more seriously. I think even the term speculative fiction, you know, is sort of people feeling that sci-fi fantasy has too much stigma to it. 
and speculative fiction is a more let's just have a new word that doesn't have all that baggage tied to it. I do like the phrase speculative fiction. Um, I was introduced to it more more recently than, than I think most people have, and I think it's I think it's a good way of, of putting it without having it attached to that. As you said, that that baggage. Part of the thing is that the term fantasy inherently sort of has a certain level of conjuring, you know, uh, whips and chains and give mats. Well, that too, <laughs> uh, and and that that you know, modern fantasy really isn't necessarily. Yeah. And so, speculative fiction is just saying this is a new thing. You know, let's just have a, a different word. Let's start sort of from the new ground floor uh, so people are approaching it for what it is and not just having preconceptions. Um, so basically, yeah, I think I think it is uh, an optimistic thing. And I mean, I think even just something like Eberron, part of the point was let's take a different approach to, uh, to fantasy and D&D tropes and such than uh, a lot of other previous settings have done. And certainly, again, I'm not trying to say it's unique in that. I mean, you take something like Planescape, and that was a very unique take on things. Um, and since then, there's certainly been more. But I think, again, it was sort of that time of saying, even D&D doesn't have to be this particular D&D we think of. Um, as for what it means for gaming overall, it's just hard to say. Because, I mean, you take things like World of Warcraft and just the sheer number of people who play that. And are those people, you know, is that something that would ever translate to tabletop role-playing? And I don't think the answer is yes, I'm afraid. But I also don't think that tabletop role-playing is ever is, is a, you know, a doomed hobby or anything like that because it does offer a kind of experience you can't uh, get you know, through a computer or through a movie because of the entirely both collaborative and interactive experience that I can create, you know, an awesome Eberron video game, but it's always going to be limited by the capabilities of the program, essentially, whereas working with other people, whether it's Fiasco, where it's just all of us completely collaboratively, or working through the medium of a game master as, you know, a sort of core storyteller, it's still the fact, this comes back to us talking earlier about running the same game over and over. I've run this particular adventure 60 times, and I'm someone is almost certain to come up with an approach I've never seen before. And that's what makes it different, is when someone comes up with something that no one's ever tried, I'll figure out how it's going to work. Whereas, you know, with a computer, well, if we've never programmed the ability to climb a tree, you just can't climb a tree, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you think about it. Yeah. Uh, whereas when you're dealing with a human, if you say, I'm going to climb a tree, even though no one's ever thought of it, I'll figure out what happens when you climb that. Tree. I'm going to climb a fucking tree. That's what's going to happen. And so that's all I'm saying is I think that things like Game of Thrones and World of Warcraft actually do, you know, help uh, Dungeons and & Dragons and other role-playing games continue to thrive. I don't think it's suddenly going to end up that suddenly there will be 100 million people playing Dungeons & Dragons all of a sudden. But like I said, I think it's going to continue uh, continue to go as it has been. As soon as you said that, a dozen Hasbro executives just started crying. Mm. 
I think but, one one mm-hmm. thing that kind of ties in with what you said is the difference between playing something online, World of Warcraft, DDO, uh, Guild Wars 2, any of the, the numerous uh, MMOs out there, is there's something between, you know, seeing your character level up and then mm-hmm. actually having that intimacy of putting your stats down on paper and mm-hmm. seeing your character sheet progress is a whole different a different thought or, or, or ideal of, of seeing advancement in, in two different media. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I agree. Um, and, and that's the thing is, is I love, you know, like I just recently played the Mass Effect games, which I hadn't played uh, before. And it's a fantastic storytelling experience and really draws, drew me in and such like that. But it's still an entirely different experience than I would get playing a science fiction campaign, uh, you know, run by a friend of mine. And I think both of these things are going to continue to evolve. I think that uh, we'll continue to see even better online storytelling, uh, but that we'll also see people continuing to try new things uh, in role-playing, you know, from everything from Fate uh, or Fiasco to, you know, Phoenix. We're trying to do a different sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I look forward to seeing what people come up with. So do I. So I'm going to throw this out there for you, Keith. I know you don't travel as much and all of that, but I am going to invite you. Coming up in February in Minnesota, we have our Con of the North. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a it is a gaming con, and it's specifically designed for gamers to to come and try new stuff. And you know, you can do Pathfinder Society, you can do all kinds of things. It's a pretty pretty. It's a medium-sized con. It's not. It's nothing on the scale of like Gen Con, but you know, there's about a thousand mm-hmm. people that come every year. Mm-hmm. I would like to invite you out. We can't cover your travel costs, but I think between the hosts and our group of friends, we could definitely put you up mm-hmm. in the hotel and cover the cost of your con fees if you're interested. Well, I'm certainly interested, so so let's continue to talk. The one thing I have to say is February may be a terrible time for me if I am uh, in the midst of launching a Kickstarter. Right. So that would be the thing I'd have to think about. But, uh, but yeah, definitely uh, definitely, let's talk. All right. We'll continue talks, and we'll keep people. I, I love, uh, I love getting to, to meet new people and play with, uh, play with people, so, uh, so I'm always interested in uh, going to a new convention, new to me. Well, and the... My ulterior motive is that one of my goals before I, I don't know, stop role-playing, which will probably be the day I die. So one of my goals before I die uh, is to play in a game, an Eberron game run by you, mm-hmm. and to run an Eberron game for you. I, I will say that I love running Eberron, and uh, I've actually had uh, some very good experiences playing uh uh, playing in games run by other people. So I would enjoy it. Excellent. Well, then we will continue to talk. We'll figure something out. Even if it doesn't work out for Con of the North, maybe we can uh, figure something out at, at another time. Absolutely. Well, very good. Well, Keith, is there any parting thoughts you want to leave us with before I sign, out, sign us off for the evening? If you can't say something nice, say something surreal. Bananas. I love it. Zombies rule Belgium. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Well, Keith, it has definitely been a pleasure talking with you. It was a lot of fun uh, just sitting here and 
asking you questions, and we're definitely glad that you agreed to to be on our podcast. Absolutely. I'm very glad I uh, came. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And uh, to the rest of you guys listening and to Matt, it's been a pleasure. Always is a pleasure. And uh, we'll see you in a month. All right. Thank you very much. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.